Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Columbia Professor Akil Amar today. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy, don't broadcast that too widely. Well, I guess it's a little too late. Yale considers me kind of an exclusive relationship, but yes, I do love the city of New York. It's an amazing place. I love coming down basically one day a week, one semester, and interacting with some amazing students and with a, a great city. The audience may have already detected, Andy, that you have a bit of a cold. I mean, you're soldiering through, and thank you for that. Neither rain nor snow. Or the heat uh, and, of, uh, nor the warm weather of Florida, where yeah, apparently well, contracted. Andy, you and I were talking about this. You went down to Florida, Florida and caught a cold, and I said, they don't call it warms. They call it, you know, cold. So so why do they call it colds if if you're going to get it in, in Florida? Andy also. I'd be uh, happy to give it back. <laughs> So anyway, we're, you know, I'm back and uh, Akil's in New York today, as, as you gathered. Um, now, it's today is March 21st. I guess it's the first day of spring. And this week, we've the news has been filled with sort of things that are about to happen. So, of course, number one on the list would be the possible indictment of former President Trump, which is... Uh, dominated a lot of the news. And obviously there's some grist for our mill here. Um, but so we thought about, you know, talking about about it before the indictment came down, but that doesn't really make sense because we'd just be speculating, you know, in terms of what what they might be doing and, oh, this would be terrible, this would be good or whatever, when we don't even know that they're going to be doing it. So we've decided to wait for events uh, before getting into this in any detail. So that's that's one thing that we want to talk about, and we were thinking it would be good for this week's podcast, but we decided to wait. So what we're going to do is we're going to still try to respond to events quickly. We're not going to necessarily make you, you know, wait a full week, let's say, if the if the indictments, if some indictments came down tomorrow. Um, and we'll, we'll try to get on top of it as soon as we can um, after something happens. So but we didn't want to leave you dry, so we're going to record just a brief podcast. Um, podcast, not our usual length today, just to uh, you know, give you something to, to listen to. And, and not, that's not the only thing that's going to happen. Um, there's also been talk in Wyoming about uh, that they may pass a law having to do with a certain morning after pill or other you know, contraceptive forms. And that you know, certainly bears on our discussions of uh, abortion that we've had in the Dobbs case and the aftermath of the case. And so we want to address that, the constitutional questions involved there. But again, they haven't passed the law yet. So let's you know, wait and see what happens on that. And then finally, we've been discussing um, the Moore versus Harper case in terms of the hearing before the North, or rehearing, I guess, before the North Carolina Supreme Court as currently constituted. And the um, Supreme Court invited the parties to submit briefs and I believe that there were a couple of briefs submitted, which, again, we want to uh, discuss. But again, we want to see if this is all the briefs. And we want to have an opportunity to digest them. Um, any initial reactions, uh, Akil, that you want to share um, to any of those things? No, Andy, I think you've um, mapped it very nicely. Thanks. Okay. So what we are going to do, though, is we're going to take a couple of questions um, so that to give you a little food for thought. Um, but before we get to those questions, I do want to, Akil and I both want to talk a little bit about, about Ever Scholar. As you know, America's Constitution is sponsored by Ever Scholar. 
So what does that mean, actually, that it's sponsored by Everscholar? I mean, I think that, you know, you listen to podcasts and a lot of them have quite a lot of ads that are completely unrelated to the, uh, to the subject of the podcast or tan- only tangentially related. But in our case, the podcast was actually born from Everscholar um, because we got to know each other that way. Um, we met, really, through Everscholar. And just to remind our audience of what Everscholar is... It's a nonprofit organization. I happen to be the president, and Akil is on the advisory board. And Ever Scholar holds intensive residential academic programs for people like me, you know, and hopefully, listener, you. Um, because people that are intellectually curious, that are bright, that like to read, that like to be informed, that like to think, and recognize that their education didn't necessarily have to stop when they finished college or law school or medical school or whatever. And similarly, it's for faculty who enjoy interacting with people that are curious like us, people that value what they do, people that will challenge them, and people that will be interested in their latest ideas and their oldest ideas. So that's that's what whatever scholar was born of. And um, Akil, what was it like for you um, to be to teach in an ever scholar course? So um, just to be com- perfectly precise, you and I first met at a predecessor event to ever scholar. It was a organization from which ever scholar was born. True. I'll tell the audience the story of uh, you know when Harry met Sally. <laughs> Because when Harry met Sally, which is alluded to, by the way, the audience may know in the postscript of the words that made us. uh, When Harry met Sally, which is a great Rob Reiner, Nora Ephron, Billy Crystal, Meg Ryan collaboration. The movie begins with the first time Harry met Sally. And it didn't quite, you know, um, the the chemistry was a little bit sort of awkward. And then then there's the second time Harry met Sally. Okay, so the first time Akil met Andy. Akil completely misjudged Andy because Andy always gives you his all. And he was just so, you know, intense. And he, he, had, he had prepared so elaborately. I, th- I think we were having pizza at York, Yorkside or something, which is a local pizza joint on campus or next to the campus at Yale. And, and I was teaching full time and I was um, working on all, all sorts of things. There was this meeting arranged. Andy, oh, he was, you know, he's always an eager beaver. Um, and he had, you know, all this stuff that he wanted to talk to me about. And I was slightly overwhelmed. Uh, more than slightly overwhelmed. And you might feel that, audience members, about the podcast, because we give you so much. It's every week, and it's not 15 minutes or 20 minutes. It's an hour and a half or more, and it's intense, and we often don't even get to the bottom of an issue, and so then we come back to it the next week. So when you asked me at the beginning, Andy, if I had anything to comment on, you know, um, I, I was kind of thinking, you know, you know, half hour, that's it, which is what we may do today, and then we'll have more uh, later in the week. You know, that's a standard podcast, you know, for, for, for other folk. And the joke, of course, is there's this raffle or something, and first prize is one week, all expense paid trip to Philadelphia. 
and second prize is two weeks. <laughs> okay, because it's like now I love Philadelphia. So um, I, I, I'm one of the, um, the founders, actually, the academic founders of the National Constitution Center, and um, and it's where it all happened. And it's maybe the place where I kind of decided I wanted to to do constitutional law when I was ten years old, and my parents took me there. That's just a joke about Philadelphia that New Yorkers tell. Okay. Andy, okay, we're giving our audience a lot. And it's sponsored by Ever Scholar, which is another polite, you're just very modest by saying you sponsor it. It's just a labor of love for you. But it grows out of the same kind of energy and intensity that I first encountered. The first time Harry met Sally, I thought, like, oh, my God. Um, and then, you know, because you just you, you had, you know, 20 bullet points. and You want to talk about this and this and the other thing. And then we had a one week experience where I was a teacher in a seminar you were one of the students and there were 18 other students. And it was maybe the best seminar I've ever been part of that I've ever experienced as a student or as a professor, because there was no one candidly was quite like Andy, but all of them, these, cause these are um, more senior folks. They've been waiting for this seminar for weeks, for months. They had done all the reading in advance. They were ready to engage. They leaned forward. They had life experiences. Oh, and we were talking candidly, truthfully about some of my ideas the same way in this podcast. That was an earlier version of what became Ever Scholar, but, but it's very similar. There's a reason, Andy. Yes, that you, this is the sponsor because it's the same kind of thing. And, and it's why I do it every week. You, you know, let me talk about my ideas. You push back. You have spectacular questions. I learn stuff in talking to you. I actually realize, oh, that's what I really think. You know, I thought I thought X, but actually I think X prime because Andy has pushed me, you know, in this way and that way. Now, I haven't quite told the audience exactly in full detail whatever scholars, but just in a nutshell, these are people who are more advanced in life. They're more senior. Many of them are retired or they're in their 40s or 50s or 60s. They are all typically college graduates and they're getting, in effect, a second college education. But of a special sort, of a liberal arts sort, it's intensive, it's small. There's a lot of reading. There's a lot of interaction among the students around a seminar table. It's not a lecture. Um, I've done lectures before. I do Coursera. It's not that at all. It's intense conversation among the senior, the, the more senior students and between them and the professor. And then it splays out. That's the academic experience. And the professors are teaching their own stuff, their own ideas often. And then it splays out into a social experience where the students get to know each other um, and the professor by going to lunch, by going to dinner, uh, maybe we'll go see a museum or something like that, or some other extracurricular event, um, a tour that has some intellectual connection to what it is that we've been talking about. And Andy, it's not so different in its fundamental vision and conception from the podcast, because because that's what we're doing. You know, um, it's intellectual, but it's also we're friends. We talk about things. Um, it, this all grew out of of every scholar. And I, audience members, you should know, said I don't want a certain kind of sponsor because I'm I'm not a pitch person. 
you know, that, that if I were being, you know, not PC, not pitch man, um, you know, I'm not going to vouch for something that I don't know about. I, you know, I don't want, you know, my sponsor to be Viagra, you know, or some flatulence medicine or something like that. No. Okay. That's not what this is. Our sponsor's Ever Scholar, Andy, because you are Ever Scholar. You created it, I think, is one of the biggest and best ideas in education in 2000 years there only been five or six big innovations so there's their divinity schools and then it's a secular education and then it's research institutions and graduate education the next really big idea i would say is co-education it shouldn't be limited to to men because there was a realization oh education isn't just for men okay and enter ever scholar why should it just be for young people you know, because your brain doesn't stop at age 22 or even 25 or 26. It should be a, a lifelong educational experience. Education should be, you know, t- uh, two ways. The school wants its hooks in you lifelong. They want you to give money when you do well. But you should have a relationship with the school lifelong. You should go back and learn from it. And you should have a lifelong relationship with fellow students, you know, your classmates. And it shouldn't just be about getting together to watch a baseball game or um, a football game or a basketball game or a hockey game. It should be ongoing intellectual engagement with schools, with other eager students who may actually know stuff that, th- that they didn't know at age 20. So when I taught this Ever Scholar class, I was teaching peers like Andy, who were teaching me back in ways. I love my undergrads. I love my law students, but it was different. That's a very long answer to a short question, but that's what Ever Scholar is all about. And that's why audience members, you will not hear Viagra ads or flatulence ads or something like that, you know, anti-flatulence ads on this podcast, because I refused. Yeah, and you know, I think that your your analogy to the podcast is really a good one because, and of course, it works both ways. Since obviously it came out of our friendship that came out of Ever Scholar and the predecessor program that you mentioned, um, but um, you know, I think of Ever Scholar as uh, you know, just like we're making this podcast to try to create something for our fellow citizens that they yes. don't, that they wouldn't have otherwise. You, by we, we mean I. Honest- it's Andy. He's funding the whole thing. He well, founded Everscholar, and it's a nonprofit. He doesn't pay himself a huge salary. No, I don't pay myself a penny for Everscholar, yes, actually. Yeah, I know. Um, and <laughs> yeah. I'm on the board. And, and Andy knows, and the audience does, what that means, because I hate meetings. But I'm on the board of two or three organizations because I really believe in it. David McCullough, the younger, the grandson of the other David McCullough, dear friend, has created this thing called the um, American Exchange Project that I really believe in. I'm on the board of that. I'm, the, I'm a trustee of the New York Historical Society. I'm an affiliate and one of the co-founders of um, the National Constitution Center and Ever Scholar. And I think that's it. And I don't think any of them pays me a penny. Well, and, you know, and those are all very, very worthy. But, you know, just to think a little bit more about the podcast, you know, the, we're creating an opportunity for, uh, you know, our friends in the audience to participate by listening and participate yes. by sending in questions. But think about it, audience, if you had the opportunity to do what I'm doing now. In other words, if you had the opportunity to host this podcast with a kill. So what goes on in my in my hosting? Well, I'm not a lawyer, so I've got to learn in order to engage with, you know, in my opinion, the greatest constitutional scholar in the last century. In, you know, in mine too. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> That'll go on the Instagram. Um, 
you know, but in order to, to do that, I've got to prepare, I've got to read, I've got to, you know, know something. And just like that, you know, that same thing applies to Everscale. You know, well, we do a lot of reading. Well, of course we do a lot of reading. You know, many of us haven't been in the classroom in 30 or 40 years, and now we're going to go and engage with the greatest scholars in the world. Of course we have to read ahead of time if we're going to be an active participant, and it would be crazy not to do that. It would be very disrespectful to the faculty and also to ourselves, and we'd be wasting our time in theirs. So, of course, we do a lot of reading, and that puts us in a position where we then can engage with these great great faculty and with each other. And, you know, Akil mentioned, well, there's also these extra things, but that's actually, you know, integral to it. And we've kind of taken it to the next level, and this is really what I want to talk about um, before we move on today, is, is with these international programs. So we've got a, we had a program last year in France, which I talked about last year, and then the year before that in Greece, in addition to our domestic programs in Ever Scholar. But today I want to talk a little bit about the Italy program, because May 28th to June 11th, we're going to go to Rome and Florence. Now, many people have been to Rome or have been to Florence or both. Um, many people haven't, but at any rate, you might you might say, well, you know, I've been there. I, I want to go someplace I haven't been there. I haven't been before, something like that. But in fact, you would be going in a way that you'd never gone before. Just like, you know, you may have read about constitutional law, but if you were hosting this podcast, believe me, you never engaged with it in that way before. And we're going, we're going there with Professor Shane Butler from Johns Hopkins, professor who's a professor of classics, but also of one of these, you know, polymaths that just wrote a book on John Addington Simons, a great intellectual from the 19th century that uh, was an important figure in the Grand Tour, and Professor Lila Yon, an art history professor from John Cabot University in Rome. And think about being in Rome and Florence for two weeks in the presence of a top art history professor that's actually resident there and has been for her entire career, even though she's you know, not she's not Italian by by descent, and her English is, is perfect, as are all the professors. And then we have Professor Larry Manley from Yale, who's a great scholar of the Renaissance, really established the Renaissance Study Program at Yale, and he is go- going to be our Florence expert, among others. And then a guest professor of Marcello Simonetta, who actually wrote the book on the Pazzi conspiracy. And and then the nature of the program is that, Akil, it actually is built around the site visits. So mm-hmm. we're going to do tons of reading. We're actually going to read about the sites themselves before we go there. But we're not going to talk about them until we go. Then we're going to go there. We're going to see, Then we're going to talk about what we, what we saw. And then we're going to read something in class, just a few pages, that someone has written in response to these things. And then we're going to go to some fantastic Italian meal and discuss them. We're going to go to the Priory of Rome and look through the great keyhole that uh, where the Knights Templar visited. And we're going to, when we go to the Vatican, we're going to go under the Vatican to the necropolis. When we go to to uh, um, the Duomo in Florence, we're not just going to go to the big uh, see the big dome. We're going to go to the sacristy behind. The, the the front of the Duomo, where almost no one gets to go, which is where the assassination of the Medici took place. So all, you know, this kind of inside access, physical inside access, intellectual inside access, you know, and not to mention culinary inside access, you know, for, for two weeks, 
with fantastic reading ahead of time with great people that'll be your you know some of your best friends when you're done this is a great opportunity and i want if i could just if i could just connect it to the podcast one more time so we've had on this podcast the great gordon wood in my view he is the preeminent living scholar of of the early American period. I I would say if you ask me maybe to pick two, I would say early America uh, up to, let's say, 1840, it's Gordon Wood. And then after that, it's Eric Foner, emeritus professor Foner at Columbia, where I am right at this nanosecond, and Gordon, emeritus professor Brown. Gordon Wood has been on this podcast, and we talked about really edgy things like the 1619 Project. Gordon Wood also came to an Ever Scholar event, and I, and I, th- I hope he's going to do another one. And at that Ever Scholar event, it was actually held in New York, and we did a site tour of Brooklyn, and I learned all sorts of things about the Battle of Brooklyn with Gordon Wood next to me, Gordon freaking Wood talking about the Battle of Brooklyn. That was cool. And then we passed by a condominium unit or something where that Matt Damon lived in, and of course, Matt Damon had, a you know, a famous snarky line actually in Goodwill Hunting with Ben Affleck also in the in the frame um, in a bar um, about Gordon Wood and be like I'm with Gordon Wood and we're looking up at Matt Damon's um, unit. He, we didn't bump into him, but but like that's a cool sort of thing that you get you know only with an Ever Scholar experience. True, but, and, that, right. and that was fun. <laughs> yeah, no, it and it is great fun. I mean, it's not like we're like these these hermits that kind of bury ourselves, you know, all the time without, you know, raising a glass to, uh, you know, toast the great fortune we have to be together. Um, so anyway, um, I'm, we're talking about this today because, you know, the deadline for registration is is coming up soon. We, you know, if you're going to take this program in Italy, you need to register over the next couple of weeks. So take a look at everscholar.org um, and look at courses and you'll see the Italy course there or everscholar.org slash Italy hyphen 2023. And this is, you know, it's a course that's going to be difficult to repeat in the future because to get these great faculty in one place is very hard to do. I, I, I really urge, this this course in particular, I wanted to take time because I think it's such a, a great opportunity that we're offering to people. Um, and I want to get the word out on it. So if you're a listener to this podcast, I think you will enjoy this program. So I urge you, check it out, and uh, we'll put, of course, a link to it on the on the show notes. And, uh, okay, so now. And Andy, uh, one final thing. I see I endorse what Andy said. And just to repeat, we've had more than 100 episodes. They're all free. We're not on a network in part because they're interested in making money, and I'm actually not interested in that. And they would want, actually, ads for entities or individuals that I couldn't vouch for. And so that's why we don't do them. I, I'm vouching for Ever Scholar. I'm on the, I'm the board of directors, and I don't get paid for that either. And, I, and Andy knows I really don't like meetings so much, but I come to them because I really believe in um, this. And there's only one other thing, candidly, audience members, putting all our cards on the table since we're talking about the podcast recursively. This is a podcast about the podcast that we pitch on the podcast. And that's, frankly, my books and articles. And it's not to make money off of them. The articles are, you know, typically free and the books you can get from the library. I, you know, it'd be nice if you bought the book, fine. But I, I don't care actually truthfully about you're buying the book. I want you 
to read the book and you can read it without buying it. It's called a library, you know, and you can buy it without reading it. And if you do, I'll be bummed. Or maybe if you buy it without reading it because you're giving it to your, your niece or your nephew, fine. But, but this podcast is about, you know, uh, frankly, ideas. Ever Scholars about ideas and the podcast is about ideas. And we're always, this is an unusual podcast, not just because it's longer than most and more serious than most and, and brings in all sorts of amazing people across the spectrum, which other places don't, but we're always trying to put up reading materials for you. Virtually every week, something on the website in addition to the conversation that you can listen to. So, that, and I think we've picked a couple of questions and for at least one of them, Andy, my answer is gonna be, wow, what a great question. Andy has previewed the questions with me. Truthfully, to give you, to get the complete answer, you're going to want to read something that I've written. You can get it from the library. You can pick it up on Amazon for 10 bucks or whatever. Either way, the full answer is actually going to be in, in something that I've written. The, those are the only things that we pitch on, on this podcast, right? We've had more than 100 episodes. Have we ever pitched really anything else other than authors and books that we bring on to the show where we've read the books, we, we respect the authors, and we actually say anything that Gordon Wood has ever written, oh, my God read it. Tim Roosevelt's book, audience members will know. I didn't agree with everything in it, but that's a book worth engaging. And we had Michael Gerhart and we had Brad Snyder for a couple of episodes. Kim was for a couple of episodes. We brought lots of serious people who have written serious things and we encourage you to read them. Right. So I think the, the theme there is, first of all, the, these are things that are worthwhile. And second of all, they're things that we ourselves have, have experienced and can vouch for. So, okay. And you're right about this question that I'm going to read here from uh, listener Chris Woods. Um, it's a question which you address uh, in your writings, um, which doesn't mean that it was bad for him to ask the question rather than go, because first of all, how does, how does he even know that you've right. written about it? So, right. um, so here we go. So here's Chris Woods' question. A recent discussion at the National Constitution Center claimed that the original understanding of the 14th Amendment was, was to protect civil but not political rights. Is there an originalist case to be made that the Reconstruction Acts lost the 14th Amendment by requiring the new state constitutions to provide for black male suffrage? Section 5 of the first Reconstruction Act, for example. That's the question. It's a spectacular question. It's very sophisticated. I need to step back to tell the rest of the audience what it means. But first, let me give Chris some big shout outs and praise. First of all, I think the National Constitution Center is a serious place. I'm glad that you're experiencing it. There were six academics who were the initial advisors when the National Constitution Center broke ground many years ago. The head academic advisor was Gordon Wood. And I was one of the academic advisors. The late Pauline Mayer, whom I adored, uh, was one. The others, I think, are less a Benedict, the late uh, Rick Beeman, um, and I think Doug Kamek. I think that was the group. And when you walk into the National Constitution Center today, if you just take up, if you move to your left toward the uh, beautiful cafeteria, there'll be a little plaque that you'll notice actually, and it's with our names. and And that's when I first got to know Gordon, got to know Gordon Wood, and 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 you've heard audience members about my very high regard from. 
National Constitution Center is a serious place. The architect, an amazing guy, Harry Cobb from the firm Pay Cobb, his partner's IM Pay, since you've, you've done events in France and, and, um, that's the, the glass pyramid at, at the Louvre. And, and Harry Cobb is a great architect. It's a beautiful building. It has extraordinary exhibits. And the president of the National Constitution Center is Jeff Rosen. He's Neil Katyal's brother-in-law. You've heard audience members in previous episodes. Jeff Rosen is a national treasure. And he's the president of the National Constitution Center. And it's a really serious place. It's nonpartisan. It brings smart people of different points of view um, to its um, events. I'm really proud to be affiliated with the, the National Constitution Center. Again, something that I helped found. And, and you didn't tell me, Chris, who were the people who said that, because I'm now going to tell you something, um, honestly, life is short. You have to decide who you're going to listen to. There's a crisis of epistemic authority in the world today because everyone claims to be an expert on Twitter and very few people know what they're talking about. So I don't know who those people were. And if I if you told me the names, I'd tell you candidly whether they're in my top tier or not. But I agree with them that Section 1 of the 14th Amendment is about civil rights and not political rights. What does that mean? They they had a distinction because today we think, for example, of voting rights as a civil right. But they, the framers of the 14th Amendment, emphatically contradistinguished civil rights from political rights. And I'll tell you what political rights were, and I'll tell you why they emphatically contradistinguished them. Political rights are basically four, and they cluster together because when you have one, you tend to have the other three. Voting, serving on a jury, or I could have said voting in a jury, serving in a legislature, or I could have said voting in a legislature, or being voted for or holding office. Those are all variants of, of the same thing. Um, and military service. Okay? And to repeat, if you have one, you tend to have the others. Juror vote. And voters, ordinary voters, serve on juries. And the rights to vote often, not, it's not perfect, but often includes the right to be voted for. And if you're, if a, if black people have the right to vote, they tend to have the right to vote for other black people and black people have the right to be voted for. They tend to cluster together. And these four are to be contradistinguished from civil rights. Um, which include lots of things, but paradigmatically, for example, rights of freedom of speech and of the press and of religious exercise, rights to own, prop, own buy and sell um, and, and lease and rent property, rights to sue and be sued in a court, rights to own a business. I'll say it one other way. Any, why did they come up with this distinction? Because they are thinking about two things and they want to add a third to it. Here's one thing. What rights does a keel get? When he, as a Connecticut person, when he goes to New York temporarily one day a week to teach at Columbia, because the 14th Amendment talks about interstate EU style privileges and immunities. New York has to treat me as a New Yorker for most purposes, just like within the EU, Germany treats French people with respect and France treats Germans with respect. And that means when I come to New York, I get equal rights, civil rights with New Yorkers to sue and be sued in New York courts to worship in a church or a mosque or a synagogue, to open up a printing press if I want to, to have freedom of, of speech, to own property, to have a business, okay? For all these civil rights, I'm treated equally. But unless I actually move to New York permanently, I don't have a right to, to vote in New as a Connecticut person. I don't have the political rights to vote in New York 
or serve in a New York jury or in a New York legislature or the government or in the New York militia. So that's one thing. A second is women in 1865. Women are citizens. They can sue and be sued in diversity jurisdiction, unlike Dred Scott. They have all sorts of civil rights, especially if they're unmarried. When you're married, you lose certain rights at at common law under couverture. But if you're an unmarried white woman in 1865, you have freedom of speech. You can go to Wellesley. You've got free exercise of religion. You can own property if you're an unmarried femme soul. All sorts of things open up various businesses, but you don't vote. Serve in a jury, serve in the government, or serve in the military. You will get those rights in Amar land when you get the voting rights in in the 19th Amendment or in your state constitution before that. So before the 14th Amendment is adopted, there are these two categories. They're citizens, but they kind of have a certain, you could say, second-class citizenship. They're women, and they're out-of-staters. And now the 14th Amendment, Section 1, says everyone born in America is a citizen, is born a full citizen, a full and equal citizen. We're all born equal for citizenship purposes. What does that mean? All the civil rights, yes, but Section 1 was not about political rights. Being a citizen under the 14th Amendment, Section 1, does not entitle you to vote Hold office, serve in a jury, serve in the military. Blacks are are going black men in effect and women, but black are going to be given the rights of white women. That's section one in effect, and that's why we're going to need a fifteenth amendment in general to have a full voting rights regime for African Americans, and we're going to need a 19th Amendment to do the same for women. I believe, of course, blacks and women are protected in all sorts of equality rights by Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, the first sentence especially, that everyone's a citizen and you're entitled as a citizen to certain privileges and use against your home state. Not against a sister state, but against your home state. But the 14th Amendment, Section 1, wasn't about political rights, voting rights. Why not? Because they didn't have the political support for that. They didn't have the mandate. They didn't have the, the vote. Now, audience members, Chris understands that, and that's what he heard at the National Constitution Center, and he's got a further question about that, which is brilliant, Chris, really proud of you. But what I just said is 100% correct if you know your history, and no Supreme Court justice today says anything like that. Every Supreme Court justice is 9-0 on the Supreme Court uses the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to protect voting rights, and the framers wouldn't have done that at all. And and let me tell you another reason why they would. Equal protection clause is about persons as distinct from citizens. It's at its core about aliens. That's a weird bass-ackwards, that is ass-backwards, way of actually talking about voting rights, if that's what you're really trying to talk about. So 9-0 on today's Supreme Court, the equal protection clause is a font of voting rights jurisprudence, not in Amar land. Now, in a now, when you said, when just to clarify for our audience, when you said the framers there, you mean the framers of the Fourteenth Amendment, exactly not the framers so. of the, con- the original yes, Constitution. Yes, second founding, exactly so. Thank you, Andy. Amar thinks that voting rights are, which are political rights, plainly protected, but not by the Equal Protection Clause, not by Section One of the Fourteenth Amendment, but rather by things like the Republican Government Clause, which we haven't talked about yet. 
by Section 2 of the 14th Amendment that is actually about voting rights, by the 15th Amendment that's about voting rights on racial grounds, by the 19th Amendment that's on sex grounds, there's a a poll tax amendment, the 24th Amendment is going to be about no basically wealth-based voting distinctions, 26th Amendment is going to come along and say, oh, there's also age rules. Chris, I'm just setting the background, I haven't answered the question yet the background of your question so that our other audience members can understand, because they're not, this, not all of them are as sophisticated as, as you are now, that there's this distinction between civil rights and voting rights. And yes, Section 1 of the 14th Amendment was initially only about civil rights, not about voting rights. Why? Because the Reconstruction Republicans, the framers of the 14th Amendment, didn't have the votes to get that through. There were northern states that discriminated against blacks in voting, and they weren't yet ready to repudiate that practice. States like Ohio, for example. And without Ohio, you can't get the amendment through. So they cut back the amendment to be about civil rights. Now, Chris's question. Okay, but what about statutes that were passed, Reconstruction statutes, at the very same time requiring Southern states to let Blacks vote as a condition for rejoining the Union in full uh, with all their previous rights and, and prerogatives, like being part of the Electoral College, being seated in the Senate, being seated in the House of Representatives, the Reconstruction Republicans didn't let the Southern Confederate regimes come back in to the House and Electoral College unless they actually met certain conditions. Chris knows that now. The rest of you just learned it, maybe. And one of those conditions was they have to let blacks vote. And Chris says, well, isn't that kind of part of the Reconstruction Amendment process? And I'm saying, just so, Chris. And I truthfully have um, said this, I'm being honest with the audience, more than anyone else in the world today, or maybe for the last 100 years, it's in two places and I want you to read them. And Andy, maybe we can put some of it up on the podcast and excerpt because it's, it's not about my taking money off of this thing. It's that I want you to read the argument, see the footnotes, see the documentation in America's Constitution of Biography, Chapter 10. That's a 2005 book by Random House. And in America's Unwritten Constitution, Chapter 2, the second half, here's the argument that I make. The Constitution is not just a text, it's a deed, it's a doing, an ordainment. We the people do ordain and establish a Constitution. So understand the Constitution, you have to agree, understand not just what the words are that they're agreeing to, but how they are agreeing to it, how they are doing it. At the founding, they voted on the thing, and more people were allowed to vote than had ever been allowed to vote on anything in human history. Wow, Charles Beard knew that fact and hid it from his readers. Until Akhil Amar comes along, no one else knows that fact. Ed Morgan didn't actually know that, and he was great, you know, epic. He was Gordon Wood before there was Gordon Wood. The beginning of America's Constitution biography, I say, the Constitution, let's look at how it was adopted. It was adopted with broad voting rights and epic free speech. I return to that theme in Chapter 10 of America's Constitution Biography, and especially Chapter 2 of America's Unwritten Constitution. I say, let's look at the process by which 
the 14th Amendment was the Reconstruction Amendments are adopted. Oh, here's one other thing about the founding. They Two other things. They do it with a lot of free, not just voting, but free speech. You can be for it or against it, and people aren't voted off the island. Speaking of Greece and Everstyle, there's no ostracism. Wow, there is freedom of speech before there's a First Amendment. It's, it's baked into the very process by which we, the people, ordain established. Okay, it's part of the Constitution, not in text, but in deed, which is even deeper. Oh, and they do it state by state by state by majority rule. Constitution says nine states are needed, at least, but doesn't tell you what the voting rule is within each state. And it turns out it's simple majority rule. Wow. Now Chris is saying, well, Keel, if you're going to look at the founding and how they did it with voting, with majority rule, with free speech, how about let's look at the Reconstruction and how they did that. And let's look at the Reconstruction statutes and what they actually did, which is to repeat, require black voting in the Deep South, that blacks be allowed to vote before the Deep South would be admitted back into the House, Senate, and the Electoral College. And I say, right you are, Chris. And I actually did say that, and I, truthfully, I, I said it first, and that's the argument in America's Constitution of Biography, Chapter 10, but especially, especially Chapter 2 of America's Unwritten Constitution and now the question is, well, why were they allowed to do that? I'm saying that that's baked into the very process of the 14th Amendment is black votings, political rights of a certain sort. Two or three things. One, note that this is only imposed on the South. So because the, the political problem is Ohio wasn't going to go for it, but Ohio didn't need to be readmitted. It was already there. Now you can say, well, that raises a kill. <laughs> Boy, what a can of worms. Why are you imposing this on South Carolina and not on Ohio? And gee, if South Carolina was good enough, you know, in 1860, why isn't it good enough in 1866? And here are the answers. And they pivot on a clause of the Constitution that I mentioned but didn't tell you fully about, the Republican Guarantee Clause of Article 4. It says that every state has to have a Republican form of government, and the federal government will guarantee that. What does that mean? I think it means democracy of a certain sort. Potato, potato, republics and democracies are very similar. Republics are the public thing, the race publica, that's Latin. Democracies, it's Greek, for the, ruled by the people, by the demos. Pretty similar concepts. And South Carolina, in a nutshell, is not Republican because it's not letting its black people vote. And, the South, and they don't get to be seated back into the Congress until they have proper Republican regimes. And the South Carolina white people say, what are you talking about? First, we were good enough in 1860. Answer, yes, in 1860, you excluded slaves from voting. That's one thing. But now the slaves have become free, the 13th Amendment. And once they become free, you can't keep excluding these folks, because now they are free and they're not slaves. No, no republic ever let slaves vote, ancient Athens, uh, pre-imperial um, Rome, the Roman Republic. But excluding free people, that's different. Was, okay, so one is they say, what are you talking about? We were a republic in 1860. And they say, well, now it's different because blacks um, are, are now no longer slaves, they're free. And they say, well, what about Ohio? Answer, what Ohio is doing is stinky, but they're disenfranchising 2%, 1% of their free male population. And you, South Carolina, are excluding 60%. There are more blacks than whites in South Carolina and a regime that re excludes 60% of its free uh, population. That's not a republic. That's an oligarchy. That's an aristocracy. And then they say, well, what about women? Because uh, I said free men. 
And there, the answer is in part, oh, they're virtually represented by men, by their fathers, their husbands, their sons, their brothers. And the argument is they didn't fight on the battlefield. Now you see the connection between voting rights and military service. It's a Denzel Washington, you know, argument. And now you're going to see why the 19th Amendment is going to be important later on and all the rest. Final point. Once this has been so I think what the Republican Party does in requiring black suffrage was right and proper. It was a plausible, indeed, I think, compelling vision of the Republican government clause. And so it was permissible. It's part of the very reconstruction process that we do or not ordain an establishment, but here amending process, making amends. Amendments are a making of amends. This is part of the background of all of that. And finally, Chris, once you do that, this paves the way for the 15th Amendment, because now you're going to have, and actually, I actually, the book, it, it's a meeting of Congress on December 7th, I think, 1868, I think it, it is, for the first time in maybe six, um, in history, I just said this is a date, I'm planning on December 7th, because it's going to be later Pearl, Pearl Harbor Day. Rather than living in infamy, it's a day that should live in glory because for the first time ever, you've got a lot of people in Congress who are elected by a lot of black voters. And some of them themselves are black because black voters are voting for a black vote. And here's the line from page 397 of America's Constitution book. December 7, 1868 is a date that should live in glory for the first time ever a session of Congress, in this case, the third session of the 40th Congress, began with a membership that had been obliged to come before various electorates and state legislatures encompassing large numbers of blacks alongside whites. Now, once that happens, you can actually, you have enough clout to push through a 15th Amendment. You can't leap the Grand Canyon in, in just one bound. So you first need to actually impose this on the Southland, which is where the the most massive disenfranchisements are. Those are the most unrepublican. I mean, you got to start somewhere, and those are the right places to start. Oh, and they also seceded, and which and they took up arms against a duly elected government, and that's not exactly a republican thing to do. So. We first imposed on them, and then once we did and fixed them, at least temporarily, there was backsliding later, the representatives of those regimes helped impose that more broadly, guarantee that more broadly, even in places like Ohio. That's the 15th Amendment. And that story, Chris, is told also in Chapter 10 of America's Constitution and Biography. So it's a great question. Yes, 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 I agree with you that the Reconstruction statutes are part of the Reconstruction Amendment process. And so you need to, if you're a proper originalist, not, not just look at the text, but the deed. And that's why people like Anton Scalia were, fraud, were fraudsters. They don't know any of this. They, you can, it's okay not to know it, but then don't, damn it, claim to be an originalist. Originalists need to know not just text, but history. Scalia didn't know his history, and he especially didn't know or care about the history of Reconstruction, which is why he joined genuinely stupid and evil opinions, in my view, like Shelby County, which don't take seriously the Reconstruction vision. And Chris is good for you, Chris. I know that was a, that was a pretty long answer, but it's a great question and it's very precise. And I hope now the rest of you have gotten a little bit of a history lesson and what was going on in Reconstruction, which is taking this clause that no one had ever paid attention to before, taken seriously, the Republican government clause, and making it the absolute 
key to the most important issues of the day. Charles Sumner says that this is the sleeping giant of the Constitution that's reawakened. It's it's like, you know, in the Bible when they say the stone that the builders overlooked or rejected has now become the cornerstone or the keystone. Yes. The Republican government clause, people weren't taking it seriously, and it's the basis for Reconstruction. And the person who champions it probably as much as anyone is a great Harvard man, Charles Sumner. When you go to Harvard, right on Mass Ave, right opposite the Harvard Yard, there's a little island where Mass Ave kind of splits. There's a cemetery on one side, and it kind of goes underneath an, an overpass on the other side. And right in the middle, there's this tiny little island. There's a guy like sitting, it looks like on a throne, it's a statue. That's Charles Sumner. It's right near, near Gannett House, a Harvard Law Review. And so I would say... Charles Sumner, maybe also John Bingham, one a senator, one a representative. They're the key architects of this Reconstruction vision founded on the Republican government clause. Yeah, there's a certain irony in what you're saying, I think, about the Republican government clause. You seem to be making the argument that that um, once the 14th Amendment is passed, or in the process, once the 13th Amendment is passed, rather, um, that... The southern states are now in a state of they're unclean, you know, from a Republican yes. point of view, whereas earlier they were not unclean um, yes. from, from the point of view of. And, and what was the difference? That blacks were in a greater state of degradation earlier. So by, you know, so, so by, it, it, by it, being it, that it, much it, more unfair and, and you know, it, unjust. It is an irony. You know. Here's how I think about it. And this is a Marcus Constitution. Let's take the Amar family. My dad's 94 years old. One of the reasons we're a little late at this episode is because I was out visiting my dad. So when the Amar family wants to come to America but isn't you know, able to, the Americans don't have to give a damn about what the Amar family thinks about anything. We're in India. We have, we have no right to you know, be counted. But once America lets the Amar family in, and not just as immigrants, as, as visitors or something, but once Akil is born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and he's a citizen, it doesn't matter whether his parents are or not. They weren't. Okay, they weren't. They were just students at the time, med students. That's the very sentence we're talking about, Chris, that first sentence. I am an American citizen because the Constitution gives me that gift on the day of my birth, September 6, 1958, because that first sentence says anyone, you know, born in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. And I was, if I had committed a crime at age one month, they could they could go after me. <laughs> um, so I'm subject to U.S. jurisdiction. doesn't matter if my parents are citizens or not. It doesn't matter whether I'm born in wedlock or not, whether I'm born white or black or green or brown, whether I'm born Jew or Gentile, you know, whether I'm born, you know, circumcised on the eighth day or not, whether I'm born gay or straight, male or female, first or fifth born. It's a great idea. We're born equal. You know, we're created equal. This is Lincoln's idea. It's now the first sentence of the 14th Amendment, you see. That's what we've been talking about. So, yes, you can say it's ironic, but here's the point. If Akil isn't in the U.S. at all, he's, it's, he's, he's in a more degraded state from my you know, point of view because, you know, America's better than, than India. People want to get from India to America in general. So if I'm in India, they don't have to count me at all. But once I'm here and once I'm a citizen, oh, Yes, the Republican idea is you have to count me now in a way that you didn't before. Analogy. 
Well, slaves were simply seen as not part of the people. They were seen as strangers, aliens. But once they're made part of, the, and, and the classic justification of slavery was someone was captured in a just war, not a mere war, but a, a war with justice on one side, could have been made to forfeit his very life. Lesser included is, because you know, uh, death could be meted out upon a prisoner of war way back when, but it was seen as lesser to just allow lifelong slavery. Now, I think this is grotesque in all sorts of ways. No, you can't kill someone when they're no longer posing a threat to you. And there are lots of wars that haven't been just in any event. How can your your unborn progeny to the nth generation be enslaved for what you may or may not have done? So it's absurd. Okay, some of the rationales. But the idea is slavery is one thing. You're just simply not part of the demos. You're not part of le peuple. The vault. And democracy is always going to have a boundary. It's going to have a denominator problem. But once you cross over into, so you're on the inside of the circle rather than the outside, yeah, they have to count you, even though they didn't have to have let you in the circle to begin with. That's my analogy. Slavery is one thing, but once you're no longer slave, oh, you got to count. And then the answer is, well, what about women? Right. And and then they have a little song and dance about that. But eventually, the 19th Amendment is going to say, actually, you were right. And by the way, Andy, and I'm plugging this, it's not available yet for, for sale or anything. That's the new book. The new book is The Words That Made Us Equal, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1840 to 1920. And it ends with women getting the vote everywhere. But in the middle of it, oh, it's all about the Gettysburg Address and Created Equal, and then Emancipation Proclamation and a 13th Amendment which is going to lead to a 14th Amendment, which is going to lead to a 15th Amendment. And that's what that book is all about. And Chris is going to talk about um, the Reconstruction Statutes, just as you did. Well, um, really great question. And Andy, we've gone on and on and on, but I, th- I think we've given you know our audience a little bit of a taste. And this is what Ever Scholar does. It goes into stuff with a depth that you won't get, frankly, probably not even at the National Constitution Center, which is pretty good. Um, but you won't get it in you know, um, Amar deaths. You know, I'm, I'm thinking back to a, uh, you know, you, we talked about the Civil War course that you taught um, when we met. You taught, you know, this other course with Gordon, Gordon Wood on the American founding, first American founding. Yes. And one night we went to dinner and... Yes, Andy's all about the food. And yeah. I have, you know, literally no taste, but but Andy does. I, I Audience, if you go, Andy is going to treat you very well from a culinary point of view. Yes, well, true, but this actually is a dinner, and the but the thing I'm going to talk about is not about the food. So um, I'm sitting across the table from you, and there's uh, another gentleman who was his first time at Ever Scholar, and he was a lawyer himself, actually. But at any rate, he uh, took issue with something you said, and he challenged you, and oh boy, you guys went at it, and yes. you know you let him have it, but then he let you have it, and back and forth. And then we walked back afterwards uh, from like 69th Street down to 54th Street. So, you know, pretty long walk. And the whole way you're that you're talking to him about this thing. Yes. And so, you know, you yes. come to every scholar and you, you can challenge these scholars. And you, you're going to be around by a keel for an hour. Well, but all he you want to do is he, just, you know, go to your hotel and, he, and get some sleep. <laughs> he gave back as, as good as he as, as good as he got. Yeah. And that was, uh, that, I, I, it was very memorable for me. That that was that was a wonderful and, and audience members should actually know it's it's just very interesting when I'm talking to someone just time 
you know, I, I lose track. So every time, every time I come to Columbia, as soon as I alight from the, the, the train, 125th Street, and I got a half hour walk over to Columbia, I call Andy. And then all, you know, when we just talk and all of a sudden, oh my God, I'm, I'm here. It was a very fun conversation. Yes. And that's, you know, people say, well, you know, why don't you just do this on Zoom or something like that? And there are so many reasons why we don't do it on Zoom. And obviously when you go to Italy, you can particularly see why you wouldn't do it on Zoom. But it's to allow for these kinds of things to, you know, when you, when you have a great conversation, we don't put these artificial limits on it. So in a way you're back in college again, remember your, you know, 3am great conversation with your buddy, you know, whatever. And, you know, so this kind of thing, the things that occur spontaneously kind of in the cracks of the day, that's the kind of thing that you'll never get anywhere else. So once again, and our friend, and our friend, for example, Steve, um, when we were uh, did the, the Alabama trip, the Birmingham trip, yeah, a big part of that was Andy and I ha- ended up having a you know a, a great road trip, maybe even more than we had bargained for. But it was like John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, yep. you know, uh, Blues Brothers on, on a road trip. Yes, thank you, Frontier Airlines. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> All right, so we, uh, so audience, we gave you a little more than a half hour. Uh, we gave you a big question. We gave you some insight into Everscholar. Now we're asking you for something in return. Go to everscholar.org slash Italy-2023. Take a look at it. Learn about the program. Consider it, and if you yourself can't do it, tell your friend that you know would love it, and uh, we'll see you in, in uh, Rome. So, and for the rest of you, We'll see you next week and or sooner um, to talk about uh, some of these other topics like President Trump. Thank you, Akil. Thank you, Andy.